Hello, and welcome to the Artificial Intelligence and Drug Discovery Podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I'm your host. On this episode, I speak with Regina Barzilai of MIT's Machine Learning for Pharmaceutical Discovery and Synthesis Consortium. It's an honor to speak with Regina. She's a prolific researcher with many highly cited papers in machine learning, particularly natural language processing, oncology, and chemistry. She's also a MacArthur Fellowship recipient. In her role with the relatively new consortium, she and her colleagues are collaborating with industry to design software for automating small molecule discovery and synthesis. On this episode, you'll learn what drove the need for the consortium, the importance of standards and benchmarks for AI drug discovery research, and the progress researchers are making in applying machine learning to chemical synthesis. This episode is brought to you by BenchSci. BenchSci uses artificial intelligence to reduce the time, uncertainty, and cost of biomedical research. Use it to find research antibodies up to 24 times faster than using PubMed or Google Scholar. Just enter a protein of interest and filter by technique, organism, tissue, or 15 other options. BenchSci returns only relevant published figures and products. Researchers in 14 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and more than 1,300 academic institutions now rely on BenchSci to find antibodies. It's free for researchers and academic and nonprofit institutions. You can sign up at BenchSci.com. If you work in industry, just use the contact form on BenchSci.com to reach out for a demo. And now, on to the interview. Hi, Regina. Welcome to the podcast. Hey. So thanks for joining me. Uh, I wanted to start by talking a bit about your background. So as we were talking just before the call started here, I you know, try, went through looking at some of your papers and you're one of the most prolific researchers that I've seen uh, and particularly in natural language processing with many uh, highly cited papers that long predate the hype cycle that we're in now for machine learning. But I wanted to know how you got from your work on natural language processing to your current work on small molecule discovery and synthesis. Can you trace the path from, from that, from the, the natural language processing to the work you're, you're doing on now with the MIT consortium? Uh, so you, uh, in terms of the technique themselves, there's actually a lot of connection between uh, natural language and um, design of small molecules. And if you look at the field within machine learning, um, Natural language processing, what makes it unique, is actually understanding the structures. Natural language processing is primarily trees, but it can be graphs. And how do you translate you know, the insights of linguistic theory into the right structures and then do learning and inference on those structures? Um, so in some ways, the two, uh, in, when we're talking about molecules, we're talking primarily about graphs, but technically there is a lot of connection between these two areas because both operate over structural object. But my personal foray into this area was uh, actually driven, um, it was very uh, random move because a few years ago, faculty in chemical engineering approached me and asked me if I would be interested to join him a DARPA proposal 
uh, on uh, using uh, machine learning for retrosynthesis and my original role was to extract some information from text. I said, yes, of course, why not? And then when we uh, were awarded this proposal, then it came to, you know, to all the team members this understanding that there is really, uh, we can do much more than just extract from text. We can start doing the prediction on the molecules themselves. And this was really kind of really exciting new area for me. And, um, and from there, the things developed to the current state. And do you think that because of your background, you have a unique perspective that's going to be different than somebody who might be approaching this, who has a background in chemistry because you've worked with like large document sets and the way that you approach the problem? Do you think that gives you a unique perspective on it? I think that unique perspective here, and I really clearly see it in chemistry, is that um, the best models that you can create actually utilize the particular properties of the structures that you are working on or some insight about the problem. And if you look at the best works that were developed overall in the field of natural language processing, it's not just taking something from machine learning and applying it there, but it's really understanding what is unique about the structure, how we can do inference more effectively in some general case. And this type of skill, you would translate it to a different structure with a very different properties, uh, but that's where you can really, um, uh, you, you know, make interesting models which are highly effective. And one thing that I noticed in this field when I entered it, there were very few papers on deep learning, you know, and chemistry when we started here at MIT. One thing that I noticed, which was really non-inspiring, is like people just took the model that was developed for whatever, and then you would like CNN and you just apply it. And, and you know, it's a, of course useful baseline and it tells us how difficult competition is a problem. But I would say those are really not the most interesting and promising uh, models that are available out there. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to uh, that to talk in a bit about what are the most promising approaches. But before we go there, uh, uh, what sparked me reaching out to you was the announcement of the consortium. How did that originate? Where where did the idea come from to bring together both industry and researchers at MIT. What sparked that idea? Uh, so we were doing a lot of work uh, on the, our DARPA project uh, called uh, Naked, and it was you know great collaboration between um, you know professors on the AI side with me and Tommy Yakala and our students and Klaus Jensen and others from chemical engineering. And I absolutely have to mention Connor uh, Cooley, who was a student who really is in between machine learning and chemical engineering, even though he's a chemical engineering student. So it was fun. And then we kind of understood that even though our original goal was to do retrosynthesis, there are lots of other questions that we're really interested in. And if you ever visited Cambridge, you can notice at MIT, my own building, you know, I see Novartis from my windows. Mm-hmm. And surrounded by pharmaceutical companies and then I said okay um, all these questions that we are already working on like property predictions for instance 
are actual problems for that industry? Why wouldn't we invite them over, show what we have and hear what kind of problems that, that we have? And we had really fascinating conversation with them that we understood, yeah, these tools can really change how people are doing science and help them in their drug discovery process. Uh, and we learned a lot from this interaction. And during this kind of, it was a workshop at MIT, I think, last year, last spring, we realized it would be great to have consortium because, first of all, the questions that we're interested in go way beyond the scope of original DARPA call. And um, second, uh, in order for us to really make innovation in this field, it is not enough you know, to run this model on some standard benchmarks, we need to understand what are their questions and uh, hear from them and jointly to formulate agenda for this field. Uh, and that's where we, you know, came up with an idea of having consortium. Hmm. Were there specific things that you don't feel or didn't feel were being addressed currently by existing academic and industry initiatives or startups. Uh, so, for example, I know there's the Atom Project, which is uh, you know a number of companies um, like GSK and uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory have come together on that one. And then there are at least 94 startups that I have identified in this space, and of course a number of academic institutions. Was there a big gap? Was there some kind of gap that you felt existed that the consortium really wanted to focus on? So let me just give you an idea how I feel there is a huge gap in opportunity. If you look at the top machine learning conferences like ICML and NIPS, papers on chemistry and drug discovery are still very tiny portions of overall papers. Like mm. you can't even compare natural processing in this field and this is tremendously important field for all of us you know at some point we're all going to be sick and old and we need the drugs like mm -hmm. so this is an important field and even you said you counted 94 count how many startups do you have in natural language processing sure. <laughs> right make any sense that in this field you have so very few and again i can count on you know on my two hands the number of academic groups that I know is really are producing innovative research in this field. And what I mean innovative is not just a chemist who took CNN and applied to their problem, but really thinking about new models. And it absolutely has to change. And what I felt that it is not enough for us to imagine what the industry may be interesting in. We really need to go talk to them and understand what are their problem specification, on which questions, if we give them the tool, they're going to use it, and which question they will not use it, and how they're using it. And if, you know, looking at the literature, I didn't get any of those insights. And letting me be very specific here. So uh, I'm bad with names, but there is this very nice toolkit, a chemistry toolkit that comes from Stanford on property prediction. And um, they collected 14, I think 14 or 15 benchmarks that they set on property prediction and you know, they compared with a variety of models. And uh, what uh, we actually took this uh, data sets, we ran our own models developed at MIT, we did better than any of the existing models. Mm. But to me, the question was the following, how does it actually work in industry? 
why they don't use this model? Maybe fine, the MIT model just became available like a few months ago, but there were other models because none of the people that they talked to actually use these models. And it's not clear to us whether these benchmarks, some of them very artificially created, really are representative of the type of problems that people in industry have. We don't know that, that if there is a rank of the models that we obtain by looking on the public benchmark, how do they translate to the industry performance, we don't know. So the only way for us to know is to put these tools in the industry where they apply it on their own data sets and, and then hear back, and it's actually what we are currently doing with Amgen and um, Navatis and others, where they take these tools and um, you know run it on their selection of data sets and we will compile it and I hope to write a paper there, which really would tell us are the standard datasets on which we are testing predictive of real performance? And mm-hmm. without industry players, we cannot answer these questions. Mm-hmm. So your your work then partly now is to validate the the, the benchmark data sets because we've seen how in other areas like you you have ImageNet for image classification and it's very clear whether or not it's working or not because it's classifying images or Squad for question answering. There are these things that the, the people rely on so that when we see people. There's been progress. Well, see, this is point. Mm. There are a lot of people in NLP who are very upset with squad. This is a okay. real performance on squad. It's not really representative on many other tasks, which are even in question answering. You know, you can be great on squad, but there is reading comprehension data set, which really doesn't translate for various reasons. And it's not clear to the communities that by optimizing on squad, we really are improving our capacity to process documents. This is an open question. Mm-hmm. But in natural language processing, whoever has doubts can create a new data set or take some other data sets and make these comparisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because most of the real data sets uh, for property predictions are proprietary data sets within the pharmaceutical company, unless they are the ones who are going to try and tell us, we would not know. Mm-hmm. So that is that a big so is that potentially the biggest barrier right now is that we don't know the validity of the benchmark data sets that we're using. It's just one small set, but the the problem is that you know that you know like you can say people are working so much on the property prediction task, lots of different models. And you say, why are they not used in industry, most of this model? I mean, maybe there are companies which do use it, but there are lots and lots of big companies to do a lot of property testing, and they don't use this kind of model. They use something very different. And they actually spend some time looking around the companies to understand what's going on. So I can tell you, they don't use many of this, most of these models. So the question is, why? And unless we bring them there, understand the performance, understand whether the benchmark is representative, we will know. So this is an important, actually, part of the consortium of understanding this type of questions and understanding the benchmarking. Let me give you another example. We had a paper, I think it was ICML, on lead optimization. And the only corpus that is uh, available for lead optimization, the only benchmark, is really toy baby benchmark. Mm-hmm. that human chemists can do very fast. So we published it, we did well and whatever. But does it really mean that with this improvement in this performance, we really are solving a complex, realistic lead optimization task? So that's why it's so important to bring it to the users who are going to be uh, actually employing these tools, see what happens in reality and update our tools. Because what I feel happens now is 
people in pharma, vast majority of, you know, chemists are really spectacular and amazing, have a lot of intuition and expertise, but maybe much less expertise within machine learning. They may understand how the basic model works, but they don't, you know, have what people in computer science and machine learning can propose. And you kind of take the picture and divide it to two parts. And in order to see the whole thing, you need to put them together. And this is maybe one of the main goals of the of our consortium is to put the two uh, audiences together to create something new and to move the state of the art forward. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you have a good understanding of what the barrier is in terms of not having that industry validation. When you talk to the industry partners, did they have a similar recognition? Like, do they have this, a similar perspective to you that the problem is that we don't know if this is applicable and that's why we aren't adopting it? Did they agree with your perspective? Yeah, I think that th there are various reasons and many of these people is just they used to use their the certain toolkits and, you know, they continue to use their certain toolkits, they deliver the value, you know, this is how the flow works. And, um, uh, you know, part of the consortium is doing a lot of education to, to, to explain what is available and how the tools work, but, but, but the barrier today, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to cross the barrier. And... Um, one of it is usually a cultural divide, a knowledge divide, that most of these people who are users of these tools are not aware about alternatives, or maybe they are aware about alternatives, but not sure if they're going to deliver. So part of it is just actually bring the tools and that's what you need to make it work. Those are the options, that's how you can optimize it. And then observe what happens. And if things don't happen the way you know they, we hope, uh, that they will, you know, one can update and, and helping. It's like a back and forth process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, it, so I get, I, I'm getting the sense of what consortium members get, both the, the research side and the industry side. Um, what ultimately it will be the output and, and what will be available only to consortium members and, and then will anything be available to the public or to any uh, researcher who wants to make use of it? So we are currently, like the tools that we already deliver to the consortium are our retrosynthesis tools and our property prediction tools. Um, uh, so, and uh, many of the tools that we've developed, like for instance, our retrosynthesis tool is publicly available. You need to sign to get a login, but it's publicly available tool. The only issue is that we don't give you a copy of the code. You can run it and try it and... Um, it's available online, but you would need to bring your molecules and run it on our server. We promised you that we delete them, we don't copy them, but for most of the consortium members, it was important to have their own proprietary um, copy so that they can train it on their own material rather than you know, on some reaxis or whatever materials we use for training our tools because then it can adapt much better to their own chemistry. Mm. So this is uh, one example. Um, where we give them something which is more, you know, unique to them. Um, for many papers that we produced, if you looked at my papers, we always release the code and make it publicly available. But what the extra benefit that consortium members get is once they download this code, we can help them to integrate it within their pipeline. And now we kind of experience our first interaction of getting their feedback and improving the tools for them. Because, you know, you can give generic tool and the algorithm, but typically companies have their own 
you know, unique needs. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a but, lot, there's a lot of work once you get feedback. Emphasize that every single paper that comes out of the MIT group, the code is publicly available. And I think it's extremely important that at least on the public data sets, uh, we can compare and reproduce and whoever wants to improve their results or to compare with us, they have an option to do so. And uh, we report everything for better or for worse, again, on the publicly available data sets. So in terms of the science, uh, we don't compromise the science um, as part of the consortium. Great. I want to switch gears a bit here and talk about the, the research itself. So I've read that one of the issues with some of the current approaches to automated molecular design is validity. So they'll generate molecular structures that may be novel, but they're just totally invalid. Um, is there something fundamentally wrong with approaches people have taken to date? So I just, I, I'll do the one comparison I have in my head because I've played around with a lot of uh, text generation um, using recurrent neural networks. And, you know, you get these strings that are like hilarious, but make absolutely no sense because they don't understand the, the syntax or context or logic and they have no common sense. Um, and that's the comparison I'm doing in my head. Is there a, an approach that just, you know, where maybe the, the way people are approaching it is never going to get us to a point of validity unless we incorporate some sort of, you know, a higher level or higher order understanding of uh, of of how things come together or the properties is there something that we're 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 missing right now so this is actually a great question and i want to connect it to what we discussed earlier is about just taking tools that were developed for something and plugging them in and hoping for the best which is clear that is not the right approach mm. and for this reason, when we were working on the lead optimization problem, it became very clearly that if you kind of take the standard approaches, you translate it to, you know, the molecule to a vector, you optimize it in hidden space and you generate, which sounds like an interesting idea, what you generate is not very valid. And that's why I was thought about representation, which really would enable you very clearly control for generating, uh, for producing valid chemical structures. And in this case, actually encoded, uh, part of our encoding translated the molecule into a tree of a bigger substructures, which are based on um, uh, some chemical theory, how this translation is done. And then you represent molecule both at the level of this high level substructures and also at the low level as a graph. And when you're doing your generation, you first generate the modified graph uh, where you can check for validity. You have a language to check for validity of your generated structure and then you kind of produce all the smaller fill in the smaller details mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and in that case we were able with all these extra checkups and the structure we were able to generate 100 percent you know correct molecules um, so i think uh the approach here to solving this um dilemma of generating invalid structures is really very carefully think about the encoding and decoding and their design and in contrast to natural language processing one very appealing thing about chemistry there are actually a lot of information that is available i mean there, there are much more i would say kind of um theory and um 
it's much more defined than producing in some ways, you know, valid natural language string. And one of the big questions for me, in deep, for us, for the whole team, not only me, but is how you can, in the most effective way, can utilize chemical theory, chemical knowledge to do a better job, to integrate them nicely with deep learning models. And I think this will be crucial for, you know, improving the performance. Mm-hmm. So it, it, from an architecture perspective, it doesn't sound like you, 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 that you think something like uh, like a generative adversarial network is really going to cut it because it's still not going to incorporate some of the, the theoretical concepts. So it's going to have to be um, some kind of different architecture or approach. Do you... The architectures that we had, uh, for instance, that encodes is bigger, bigger components. If you just kind of know what you're looking for, so why would you let the model to run wild? You can right. give it feedback. Don't. We, it doesn't mean that we have to, to, you know, to encode the theory like even else, but to take some info insights from what we know has to happen and directly put it into the model. So I think there is a lot of interesting uh, exploration in the space of architectures and how maybe even an automatic way we can translate these constraints into fruitful architectures. Mm. Does it limit the novelty though when you do that level of constraint or does it you know force you to incorporate certain biases maybe things that we've or rules or generalities that we've inferred that may be artificially limiting like is there a trade off between novelty and validity I I think that uh I I you know we are not talking about over constraining we're just thinking about the way introducing architectural bias the model can still push it into mm. some new direction but uh if you know that something has to happen there is no point to make the most you know learn it because we know that this is true and um one big, it's particularly important in other areas that you didn't mention, but I know that this is a big case for the consortium members and in, in for us, is a case of transfer learning. Because most of the time, if you're in pharma, you're actually focusing on new chemistry. And our assumption that our training distribution fits, you know, nicely, test distribution doesn't really hold, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've had many, many stories that people are training it on some data and they apply it to really new chemistry and then the funny things that happen when, you know, our classifier predicts something with high confidence and it's totally off. So in this case, uh, you know, incorporating some things that we know in a smart way can be an additional way as, as a bias, not a, a hard-coded rule, can help us to do better transfer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I guess also it would help if we had, if everybody was just willing to put all of their data into a, a public space where you could just build a more comprehensive model from, you know, many more uh, data sets. But I don't know how, how quickly that might happen. Um, I also notice we're bumping up against the time here, uh, Regina. So I've really enjoyed our talk. And where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Uh, so about me, you can just query Regina Barzal, <laughs> just one, and you can read on the webpage, there is a link to the work on chemistry, and um, most of the information is available online. And I also want to 
mentioned that I recorded Pharma AI tutorial, which is 45 minutes tutorial, which kind of goes through the basics. And I will put it on my webpage for those who want to learn in more detail what MIT team is doing. Great. I want to watch that myself. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. It took a while to coordinate this interview, I know, but I, I, it was well worth it. I learned a lot. I, I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You just listened to my conversation with Regina Barzilai of MIT's Machine Learning for Pharmaceutical Discovery and Synthesis Consortium. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Just look for Artificial Intelligence and Drug Discovery in your favorite podcast player. Then hit the subscribe button. Until our next episode, be well and work smart.